you closed your Bibles, would you open them again to 1 Kings chapter 21? And my text this morning actually is the chapter in its entirety and uh, the sermon, Covetousness and Its Consequences. John D. Rockefeller owned in the 19th century owned 90% of all the oil and gas industry of his time. Compared to today's rich guys, Rockefeller makes Bill Gates and Warren Buffett look like paupers. Rockefeller was the founder of Standard Oil, we're accustomed to speaking and thinking of Chevron now, but at the peak, his net worth was 1% of the economy. Think of that, 1% of the economy. He was asked on one occasion, how much money is enough? And his answer was, just a little more, just a little more. How in the world could you need or want just a little more when you already possessed 1% of the economy? Now the passage that is before us is filled with considerable drama and you may remember that we finished up last time with, um, with uh, chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19, we skipped over chapter 20 and we'll skip over chapter 22 as well because Elijah is not mentioned. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, there's uh, all sorts of kings and drama and things that take place in both of those chapters. But the fulfillment of uh, God's promise through uh, Elijah for the coming um, is not found in those chapters, but the drama continues. Kings are raised up, kings are brought low, there are wars and all of the rest of that. And so we come to 1 Kings chapter 21, and what we discover in chapter 20 and in chapter 22 is that nothing really changes. Nothing changes at all. And again, the judgment mentioned in chapter 19 has not occurred. Elijah remains a prophet. Elijah remains preaching. But Elijah's not front and center in those two chapters, but again is here. In this account with or of Naboth and his vineyard and King Ahab. I think it was Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary that refers to this as Ahab's vineyard gate. You know, we think of Watergate and all of the rest. Now let me just sort of review the the chapter, the material, give you something of a storyline before we actually dive into the chapter. And so the chapter unfolds as follows. There's scheming, unlawful scheming, the despotic behavior, the self-centeredness of Ahab along with the assistance of his wife. So there's scheming, 
And then there's stately or royal confiscation. Government exists to bring peace and safety and protect the people, and we find the very opposite here. In fact, we find perversion, falsification, and theft. We find this sinful exposure um, or the sinful uh, endeavor exposed by Elijah. Fourthly, there's supernatural denunciation, the sentence upon Ahab and his subsequent family, the whole dynasty of Ahab. There is repentance, but it appears to be, and we'll see something of that superficial and uh, is more remorse than it is repentance. And then finally, we see something of what I've called a suitable performance or the implementation of God's judgment in a future generation. Actually, there are three key persons apart from Naboth in the passage. Ahab and his gluttony or his covetousness. Jezebel and her treachery. And then Elijah and his prophecy. Well, with all of that, by way of some introduction, at least giving you a feel for the chapter, I want to look at the chapter under four headings. First of all, notice foolish ambition. Ahab's covetousness, his greed, as if he did not have enough, like John D. Rockefeller. His possessions are mentioned. He's king. He has a palace. He resides in Samaria, but he also has a palace in Jezreel. Not uncommon for kings and queens, and we're familiar, familiar at least to some degree with um, the queen and now the king of England and multiple residences that they have. Well, Ahab was no different. And in one of these residences in Jezreel, there was a plot of land which appealed to him. It was a vineyard, and he wanted it. And kings and queens often get what they want. Politicos, even in our world today, seem to get pretty much what they want. And so he comes to Naboth with a proposition. And on the surface, the proposition does not appear to be out of sorts or wicked or ungodly. The reasoning uh, is initially, appears initially rather sound. He comes to Naboth and he says, I'd really like this vineyard of yours. I have another purpose in mind in, in terms of its use, but I'd like it. And um, I'm willing to trade this for another piece of ground. And perhaps even the implication might be that it's an even better piece of ground uh, for you. Or if you're not willing to trade it, I'll buy it from you. Now, again, on the surface, that appears to be appropriate and, and even righteous. Doesn't appear to be any sin in buying a field and 
In fact, the scriptures elsewhere speak of a virtuous woman who considers a field and she buys it. So there doesn't seem to be anything on the surface that is um, untoward or inappropriate. But there is a biblical provision, a, a prohibition for uh, Naboth to do what Ahab wants him to do. The land of Canaan was a part of God's redemption under the old covenant. And so one could sell property, but after 50 years it would be returned to the original owner. And so it appears from the context that, that Ahab wants to buy it and that's it and Naboth would have no future claim not even in the year of Jubilee. Leviticus chapter 25 and Numbers chapter 36 draw attention to this law of the land. The point is for Naboth, theology was at stake. Naboth was thinking as a child of the covenant and was not thinking of personal gain. He was not thinking pragmatically as if he could make some money or as if he could trade it for a better piece of land. He could lease it out to Ahab, but that doesn't appear to be what's, what's in view at all. Ahab wants the property and he wants it permanently. Naboth is a conscientious man, again, a child of the covenant, believing the scriptures, obeying God rather than men. And so it's more than just he liked his vineyard and that piece of property, but there's more at stake here. The parcel in Canaan, this parcel in Canaan, was an earnest, a down payment of his lot in the heavenly Canaan. And so he could not sell it in good conscience. He could not trade it in good conscience. And so Ahab goes into a funk, grows sullen. Nabal apparently, or it would seem, as if he was one of the 7,000 mentioned previously who had not bowed the knee to Baal. He was willing to suffer indignity at the hands of the king. And the same thing happens to us today. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse 12, don't think it to be a strange thing to suffer as one of God's people. Injustice may often be inflicted legally, and that's exactly what takes place. Dale Ralph Davis writes, ordinarily we are to submit to government. Always we should be aware of it or beware of it, sorry. Always we should beware of it. 
And so here you have foolish ambition, Ahab's ambition. Secondly, notice Ahab's faulty dejection. Again, Ahab goes into a a funk. He's miserable. He's melancholy, to borrow that old term. There's agony of soul. Remember, a number of weeks ago, I preached several sermons from the life of Elijah on depression or melancholy and the many reasons that may lie behind of it. Well, one of them, of course, is sin. Melancholy isn't always the result of sin, but it certainly is here. He grew sad like a petulant child, an ill-tempered child. Now, as many of you know, well, there aren't many of us here today, but as, as you know, I just came back from Cuba and uh, ministry, once again, I think that's maybe number 37. I've lost track of all the times. But I met um, an extended family in the airport. This isn't exactly a, a, a perfect parallel, but I think it fits. There was a husband and a wife and their three children. And then there was another lady who was the sister of the wife. And uh, she had two children. So there are five children, two wives, not of the same man, of course. But anyway, her husband, the other one, was picking them up at the airport in Seattle. And so we, we sat down in the plane. I noticed and I met them just before getting on the plane. And I found out that I was sitting right behind them. Not the best place to sit on an airplane with five young children, all of them, I think, under five or something like that. Well, the baby started in and was crying and crying and crying and sobbing and sobbing. It must have gone on for two hours. And I felt sorry for him. It, you know, it didn't bother me. And I kept reassuring them, this is okay. This is, I've been there before. I have children and they're adults and I had grandchildren and they're almost adults now. So I've been through all of this before. But then, you know, the lower jaw was quivering and all of the rest of that, which finally calmed down. Cute little kid. In fact, afterwards, this is more than you need to know, but she started playing between the seats, you know, poking her finger at me and this sort of thing. Well, there was another one in the set. Finally, she went to sleep. All of them went to sleep. And Grandma was there, too. I forgot to tell you that. And she felt she was, was saying, we made it. We made it. I don't know why she kept looking back at me saying that. But anyway, she says, we made it. We made it. And then the, uh, uh, the, as, as the plane landed, the four-year-old woke up. And she began. And her repeated refrain was, I'm so tired. Okay. Well, it's not an exact parallel because what was taking place there was natural and children do that and the, um, all kinds of things go on in the lives of little ones like that. But Ahab became worse, if I could put it that way, and that's not a good way to put it, than those two little children who could not 
help it in this strange environment, change of air pressure and all of the rest. But he grew like an ill-tempered child for which there was no excuse unlike the children on the airplane. He grew sullen, gloomy. He began pouting, feeling sorry for himself. All that he had, the only thing he didn't have, was this vineyard. He turns his face to the wall and he refuses to eat. Ever seen little children do that? Well, here's an adult doing the very same thing. It was all about him. It was all about what he wanted and all about what he could not have. Matthew Henry writes, discontent is a sin that is its own punishment and makes men torment themselves. It makes the spirit sad, the body sick, and all the enjoyments sour. It is the heaviness of the heart and the rottenness of the bones. It is a sin that is its own parent. It arises not from the condition, but from the mind. He goes on to say, as we find Paul contented in a prison, so Ahab discontent in a palace. And finally, he says, inordinate desires expose men to contained vexations and those that are disposed to fret, be they ever so happy, will always find something or other to fret at. So thirdly, we come to fearful transgression. Something occurs that is frightening and fearsome. His melancholy, once again, is caused by sin, make no mistake. He can govern Israel, but he cannot govern his own passions. And so Jezebel comes to him, and uh, she says, what's wrong? And he tells her. And then she says something like this, or the equivalent of this. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know your position? Don't you know what you can do? And instead of doing what a faithful wife ought to have done to challenge him, she reinforces his sinful desires. And so she engages in what we might call legal treachery. She writes a letter on official stationery. Of course, there wasn't any such thing, but... uh, the equivalent of all of that. And in great secrecy. Now we don't have time to to read the whole text again, but notice her methodology and what she does, her tactic. She resorts to blasphemy 
claiming something that just was not true at all about Naboth. She resorts to forgery, writing a letter, misrepresenting the case and suggesting that it was from the king. She resorts to hypocrisy, to perjury, that is, to lying, and to robbery. What she does costs Ahab nothing but Naboth his life. What she does is marked by extortion, it's illegal, and it's cruel, and it seems to have passed on to the next generation because of the condemnation that is leveled against the Ahab's, Ahab's dynasty. Second Kings chapter 9 and verse 26 speak of, of Ahab's sons as being wicked as well. She resorts to butchery, that is, to the killing of Naboth, using the means of ordinary execution. That's how executions were, uh, took place in ancient Israel, through stoning. Pronouncing the death sentence, or rather forging Ahab's signature so that he pronounces the death sentence. Sentence. She resorts to subtlety under the cover of religion. The cover of a legal procedure, a political procedure. So the perversion of religion, justice, and the legal process. She blasphemes God, so heresy is involved and blasphemes the king and so treason. One writer has said, nothing good comes when Jezebel enters the picture. And she's called in 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 34, that cursed woman. And Ahab conforms, a weak man and a strong woman. He conforms. And notice that in terms of the Ten Commandments, he and Jezebel violate the first commandment, having no other gods. The sixth commandment, murder. The eighth commandment, the ninth commandment, and the tenth commandment, having to do with covetousness. And Ahab takes possession of the vineyard. Again, Matthew Henry writes, his blaspheming God would be the forfeiture of his life, but not of his estate, that is, Naboth's. And therefore, he is also charged with treason in blaspheming the king for which his estate was to be confiscated, that so Ahab might have his vineyard. Or perhaps this quotation from Matthew Henry, there is no wickedness so vile, so horrid, but religion has sometimes been made a cloak and a cover for it. 
Ecclesiastes 4 in verse 1 says something along the lines that the oppressed have no comforter, but with the oppressors there is power. So fourthly, fatal communication. Elijah is called into service. We've been waiting all along, have we not? Because this is about Elijah. This, these chapters, the final chapters in the book of First Kings. So the word of the Lord comes to Elijah, as it always does, comes to the prophet. And the prophet must rise to the occasion. Not only do we have the calling of Elijah, but we also have the venting of Jehovah. If you ever wondered whether God ever gets angry or is angry, well, here you have a proof text for it. God is is angry. And there is through Elijah and the words of Jehovah, the denouncing of Ahab and Jezebel. The denouncing of them, the judgment upon them, the destruction of them and their sons. This is the end of the line both literally and metaphorically. It's the end of the line for Ahab and Jezebel, but it's also the end of the line of that dynastic line. Friends, sin has consequences. And we don't sin without paying a price. Someone pays a price. Either we do or Christ has. Sin has consequences. And so there is the reporting of these sins. They're known to the Lord, even if they're unknown to others, even if they're unknown to those who have signed the death warrant, received the letters, and all of the rest. And so there's retribution as the dogs licked the blood of dead Naboth off the street, so they will lick up your blood. This is just and right. And it's because of their evil. They've done evil. Here is the cause. He had sold himself to evil, Elijah says. Retribution for rebellion. And again, as I've already indicated, the reach is all the way to future generations. There's no hiding of a way of the sons. And then there's a recall. That is, there's a reference to Jeroboam. This is a pattern. There's a pattern here in Ahab and Jezebel and and their lives, and the pattern has been established by others before them. And Elijah makes reference to their idolatry. The real cause is religion. It's false religion. And here's the result. Verse 25, we're told that Ahab was not only wicked, 
but he was weak. His wife had stirred him up. And there's a lesson, and perhaps those who are listening to this, younger people, will take it to heart very well. Because it could end up bad or badly. A weak man and a strong woman can prove to be disastrous. And then in verses 27 and 29, there's actually a fifth point. I said there were four, but there's a fifth point, and that's final retribution. Now, it's interesting that it comes to pass, the text says, verse 27, that when Ahab heard all of this, that he went through the ordinary motions of demonstrating repentance. He tore his garment, he put on uh, sackcloth, he fasted, and uh, he conducted himself in a manner that would seem to suggest repentance. He follows the ordinary pattern of repentance. He adopts, at the very least, the external signs of repentance. It appears as if he's truly repentant, but the problem is there's no way to know his heart, is there? The fact that people go through the motions and they say the right things and perhaps even pray the right, pray the right prayers doesn't mean that their heart is right. And so it is with Ahab. We have, we have no way of knowing the fact that he, that he did all of this. There's no way to know his heart. And it would appear from the next two verses as if the only one who really knew his heart was God himself. And so what we discover here and see here is regret or remorse, sorry that he had done it, but not real repentance. What we discover here is what's called, and I don't have time to develop this, but what's called an anthropomorphism. How is it that God speaks to us? Well, he speaks to us as a man to a man or a man to a woman or a woman to a man. He speaks to us as human beings. And so he uses our language and he speaks in a way that we can understand. And so he says, look at Ahab. Well, look at him. And what you see is impressive. And yet at the same time, God still pronounces judgment against him and against his house. Ultimately, both Ahab and Jezebel and their entire, uh, the, the descendants, their sons, die as well. Why would that be the case if he were truly repentant? What is in view here is not the fruit of repentance, but rather a reprieve that he receives a, an immediate reprieve or a reprieve from immediate destruction. And there's a lesson to be learned here. 
that temporary postponement is not the same as permanent pardon. And the fact that we escape and we can wipe our brow and say, man, I dodged that bullet. If there isn't true repentance and faith, all we've done is postpone the inevitable. You can't help but read this text and the following ones, but be reminded that Ahab was a man who never truly repented. While the repentance may have been sincere for the moment, it was only temporary. And remember Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the sower speaks of temporary faith. It's not true faith. And sadly, some confessions and professions are just like that. There's a temporary reprieve. There's remorse. There's regret for having been caught, but not true repentance before the Lord. And so the sentence stands, and you can't miss that. Got to explain it somehow. The sentence stands because Ahab remains the same internally. And so final ruin is merely postponed. Or as Matthew Henry writes, a hypocrite may go very far in the outward performance of holy duties and yet come short. The sentence could not be revoked. The execution just suspended. And so Ahab eventually, as well as Jezebel and the entire line, are lost. Just a few thoughts and observations as we bring this to some conclusion. Perhaps the first lesson that jumps off the page, as it were, is be careful what you desire and how you express your disappointment when that desire is not realized. Be careful what you desire and how you express your disappointment when you don't get what you desire. Act like a petulant child and you will pay dearly for that. Secondly, God's people may suffer injustice in this world. Innocence is no guarantee of immunity from injustice. And injustice flourishes not only by wickedness, but also by weakness. Jezebel stirred him up. Again, a weak man and a stronger woman. But the real point here that I'm wanting to make is that innocent won't necessarily bring Security and even governments may act unjustly and God's people may suffer thereby and suffer in other ways. 
Thirdly, no one can escape the scrutiny of God's word regardless of their status. You never outgrow or become bigger than being vulnerable to the scrutiny of God's word. The prophet stands over the king and the queen because he is the bearer of God's word. And if anything ought to put steel in the spine of God's ministers, it's that. Not that they personally stand over all, but God's word does. And even kings and queens and presidents and Senators and congressmen and mayors and all of the rest stand under the scrutiny of God's word as do we, lesser mortals as it were. Fourthly, temporary postponement is not the same as permanent pardon. And so again, breathe the sigh of relief. The axe hasn't fallen yet, but it will if there is not true faith and repentance or repentance and faith, two sides to the same coin. Sinners may escape judgment temporarily and feel safe, but they are not. Now, yesterday I had the privilege of preaching at uh, Ron Paxton's funeral. And I knew probably less than 20 people that were there, <laughs> which was fine. Old friends, family, and some of our church folk, of course, whom I know very well. But I have no idea, and I preached from 2 Corinthians 4.18 Comparing and contrasting temporal things and unseen things. This world and the world to come. Now I have no idea who among that congregation were believers and who were unbelievers. And it's quite possible that there was someone or someone's there thinking, well, the axe hasn't fallen. I really don't believe what he's saying. I'm doing fine. Everything is perfectly fine. And that can happen in any congregation. It's just that that one was larger than what I'm normally accustomed to preaching to. But again, the fact that you've dodged the bullet, the fact that uh, the axe hasn't fallen yet doesn't mean that it will not. And all too often, people ver feel very, very safe, but they're not safe at all. People that got on the Titanic felt safe, but really, at the end of the day, weren't safe at all. And so we need to be aware of the judgment to come and the need for real faith and real repentance that is so often absent and missing. Now, there's a final thought. And we reach into the New Testament for, for this thought, and I believe we do so legitimately. 
And the thought is this, that there is a Naboth who is for us in the most profound way. Again, you find him in the New Testament. And his name is Jesus. Reading this passage reminds us of another passage, or at least it does me, in Matthew chapter 26 and verses 59 through 61. Jesus walked where Naboth walked. Now, I don't mean that he was in Jezreel or anything like that. What I mean is this, is that Jezebel provided false witnesses to see to the condemnation of Naboth and Ahab's securing of that vineyard, that plot of ground. Remember that false witnesses were sought when Jesus was arrested. And it took some time, but they were finally found. And these false witnesses witnessed, well, falsely with regard to the person of Jesus. False witnesses were sought. False witnesses were found in both cases. Naboth died and he lost his inheritance. Ahab took it. But Jesus died at the hands of sinful men, rulers, political rulers, pursued by false witnesses, but he secured an inheritance. And he did so for us. Jesus stands in Naboth's position. Jesus stands as Naboth did, but not losing an inheritance, but gaining one and gaining one for you and for me. Our inheritance is secure. It cannot be removed, it cannot be stolen, it cannot be taken away. And we are secure despite the fact that it was false witnesses who did just that with regard to both of these men. An inheritance is lost, but as a result of false witnesses and wicked rulers, an inheritance was gained for you and for me. And so we may look to Christ, to Jesus, even now and be thankful, and to be thankful that he lived and that he died, that we might live and not die. And it is through faith and repentance that we come to him. And our judgment is not postponed. Our judgment has already fallen. It's fallen on the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Believe upon him. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this text. We thank you for what it means, and we pray that we may not make the same errors that Ahab and Jezebel did, thinking that they could break the commandments of God with impunity. 
We pray that you will help us to look to Christ, the one who provided a way for us, an inheritance that can never be lost and never taken away. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.